Bet Square's Anything But Square podcast was created, recorded, and edited on the stolen lands of the Bunurong and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches and on which Fed Square's partner organisations stand. Sovereignty was never ceded. My name is Sarah Gasali and today I'm joined by Lujane Hurani, a 2020 recipient of the Next Chapter Writers Fund and an incredibly talented writer and artist. Lujane, it's so great to have you on the line with me. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I think we'll just get started. We have so many things that we want to talk about. Um, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Great. Yes. I'm a uh, writer and an editor. Um, I work mainly in prose and poetry. I'm currently working on a manuscript of experimental poetry that speaks to themes of suffocation and settler colonialism in the context of Palestine. I'm Palestinian Lebanese. Yeah, I'm also an arts worker and a producer at Next Wave and Roach Refuge. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Just out of interest, is there a specific style of writing that you love? I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, is like what what defines the writing that I like to read and does it directly reflect the writing that I write myself. I have noticed the trend is that I like um, subversions of language more so than form. I just like people who are taking the reader by surprise in these unexpected approaches to language. And I think as someone who's also multilingual, that's why it stands out to me because I have a really nuanced or complex relationship with the way that I conjugate language just more broadly. I've been picking up on that a lot, actually, in a lot of the experimental writing I've been reading. It's not so much how it looks on the page, but more so what it actually reads like with the vocabularies that it uses and the way that it speaks to grammar. I always find it so interesting when bilingual people express themselves differently when they use different languages. So thank you for sharing that with us. We're talking today about Global Pride Week. I wanted to know what does Pride mean to you and in what capacity do you celebrate it in Melbourne? That is a good question. I feel like I'll answer the second half before the first. I have been to two Prides since moving here in 2016. So in the past five years, have only attended two. And this was quite a while ago. The last time I went to Pride was in 2019. It took years for me to figure out what it meant to have a queer community in Melbourne. And in 2019, after being here for years, I still didn't have one. So I went to Pride with my sister and I made a sign that had the Pride flag and then superimposed onto that, wrote in Arabic, Hakti and Akun, which is, it's my right to exist in Arabic. All these people were coming up to me and, you know, cheering and they were all celebratory and they were like, what does your sign say? And then I was like, oh, it's my right to exist. And then you you would just see <laughs> the smiles on their faces kind of diminish as they started to remember the fact that, oh, yeah, this is like not a celebration for everyone and that we're not just here to have a good time. And that was, I think, really grounding for me to see. And then someone came up to me and they were like, where are you from? And I told them I was Palestinian. And then they were like, oh, no way. Like, I've got Palestinian friends over there. Like, come meet them. I think that is 
the main reason why I, that is the last pride that I went to. I just don't need it anymore because I feel like I found what I was looking for. I wasn't going to be a part of the parade. I wasn't going to be in that space, in that public gathering. I was going because I didn't know how else to reach certain people. That urgency for me was for that in particular. Why do you think community is so important, especially when you're a person of colour and queer? That's a very good question. I'm going to answer it slowly to make sure I don't miss anything. I think that it's really hard to exist how you want to exist if you're not being seen doing it. Obviously, we can come back to this, the idea of visibility being um, such a complicated conversation point, especially now. To me personally, community feels like motivation to exist how I want to because it's validating to have someone look at you exist and document it and it starts to actually leave your head. It's really easy, I think, to feel like you're living in a vacuum and existing in a vacuum when you don't have other people who share that same lens as you. And so the reason I value community in the broader sense, but then also in like a lot of um, the work that I do as a writer as well, I just need people who read things the same way that I do to look at me and to read my writing and to see me exist and to engage with my work because otherwise I don't feel like it exists at all. I know that I'm making work for a specific audience and I need that audience to read it, to feel validated in that work. And I think that same frame I apply to my existence as well, where I exist to be a part of something bigger and unless I exist within that bigger sphere, it's hard to take note of the fact that I exist at all. I get really figurative with stuff like this, but it all feels quite symbolic to me. Yeah, even the way that you speak, I can tell that you have so much to say and I think your audience would love to hear anything, any work that you produce. Stuff that's been escalating in Palestine recently, there has been a higher um, focus towards Palestinian voices and so I've noticed I've become a lot more visible than I have been in the past and more visible than what I'm used to. And that's been kind of an out-of-body experience for me where I'm being looked at by people and I have no idea who they are and I'm being read by people and I have no idea who they are. Main thing that's given me respite at this moment has been surrounding myself with people who already know me and they know me because they view the world in the same way that I do and they've so I can bypass all of these explanations and all of these context markers and just go straight to existing without having to explain it at all. Whereas in the broader sense of having an audience and being visible, you kind of have to keep reminding them why you exist the way you do. And surrounding yourself with community allows you to knock down that barrier and exist without any kind of justification. You can just, you can just be. And I think existence means something slightly different or something bigger when you combine intersectionality and pride do you feel like there is enough light shed on intersectionality and pride and if not how can we do more of this in an ethical way this is why i uh, tiptoe around the notion of visibility 
because I feel like to be visible is actually quite a dangerous thing and doesn't take into account markers of race and class. And it's for this reason that I feel a bit icky about pride just more broadly because it feels like such a public thing. And then it starts to neglect individuals who can't make it out to pride. They don't have that privilege of safety and that privilege of freedom of visibility. And I felt that heavy when I went to Pride, which was 2017. I went with a group of friends who were all white. And that was nice that I could kind of blend into that space and exist. But I would not feel comfortable going to Pride either on my own without a group around me or with um, like a bigger contingent of people of color because then that puts a microscope on you. And I just don't like the idea of a microscope, regardless of whether or not I'm comfortable when I'm out. I just I think that this public visibility is something that socially and culturally is not as simple as it is in the West. There are social norms that pride, I think, neglects completely when it comes to a lot of minoritized communities. Yesterday and then again this morning, um, I had conversations about how migrant communities it's not a priority for us to talk about the nuances of queer liberation and anti-patriarchy, for example, not because those things aren't important, but because we're still having to deal with survival on a day-to-day basis in terms of um, the expectation of assimilation. There are people every day that are heckling you for existing as visible person of color when you are already destabilizing some kind of cultural norm, to go against it with another layer of being like, and now I'm anti-patriarchy and now I'm pro-queer liberation, actually puts you in an even more dangerous position than you were before. And migrant communities in the West don't have that privilege of destabilizing the status quo because they're inherent existence is already destabilizing. And so it's not like we're on the same footing from the get-go, whereas white people have this unproblematized way of being that doesn't need sheltering. I don't resent migrant communities for being transphobic or homophobic when they are, and I don't resent them for being misogynistic when they are. We all get given the same amount of time and the same amount of emotional capacity, and some things are just worth tackling more than others. And when one is based off of surviving more broadly. I don't know that we need to, at this point in time, hold these communities accountable when they're already dealing with so much. Like, why don't we just deal with homophobia within Western lenses? How do you think we can reclaim these spaces to make them more accommodating for people of color who are also queer? So this is it, is even though homophobia and transphobia does exist in migrant communities. That doesn't change the fact that there are queer people that also exist in migrant communities. And so pride is not the space for us. But also there are barriers to exist safely within migrant communities itself. And and I've noticed this more and more is that we're building spaces that are created for and by queer migrants and allies and that there can be tiers of existing within your community and I can kind of go home or go to a community event and still exist as someone who's visibly queer but not that's not the point of the event. Queer specific spaces exist in Melbourne and they're not family friendly community spaces all the time. 
And that same dynamic exists within migrant communities too, where we have specific events and spaces for us. It's not like every time we want to celebrate being queer, we have to do it broadly with everyone. These spaces are crucial for visibility and for creating a community, especially for people who are um, already a marginalized group like people of color or migrants. And then another layer of that is being queer. So I think these spaces are a starting point to take note of what the issue is here and then in the future hopefully merge those communities better. Yeah. So it's that it's that micro communities exist within our community. Um, and at the moment there is this segregation between the two, but that's just what we need right now. Every June we see a lot of organizations take part in this scheme of rainbow washing, where on the surface they appear to be supporting lots of queer communities, but underneath they partake in activities that marginalized queer communities. How do you think organizations can better support queer communities and avoid rainbow washing? And not just for, you know, a month, but hopefully something long term. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about this, but maybe I'll jump right into the actions that organizations can take as opposed to symbolic stuff. So with organizations that change their logo on social media to one with like a pride flag superimposed onto their original logo, um, it's all about the image of being queer friendly. Bigger questions behind that are what kind of protocols are in place in terms of mental health support for your queer staff? If any staff are transitioning, is it ingrained in your protocol on how you're going to support trans employees through their transitions in terms of time off, um, medical insurance, uh, adjusted hours based on physical needs at the time? Um, how easy is it and how open is it for a staff member to come out and exist comfortably within the organization? Are they getting misgendered every day? Are they, do they feel like they can't come out in the first place? Or is the structure that already exists one that queer employees can exist within without feeling again like they're destabilizing the structure? Is the structure itself queer? And then if the answer is no, then all of this logo floats it, pride, like that's for nothing. That means nothing at all. And I think that for the longest time, allyship was seen as just simply agreeing with someone and standing with them in terms of being like, I support you, that's enough to be an ally. And we've had some really critical conversations lately about how allyship is about action and about how you can use resources and expend labor that minoritized folk uh, don't have that same kind of capacity for because um, systems have been built against them. Um, so allyship is about using your resources to benefit minoritized communities as opposed to just standing with them in theory and thematically. That's kind of the direction that I'm hoping that a lot of this pinkwashing, rainbowwashing stuff is going in, but it feels like a very slow burn conversation that's happening right now. Does queerness have to be politicised or is that only white privilege queerness? Um, does privilege exist in queer communities from the first place? Let's talk about it. <laughs> Let's. Bringing back 
of what you mentioned earlier about the fact that we're not addressing or intersectionality as much as we should be within queer communities. Privilege within queer communities definitely does exist. I came across something today that explains it in a really confronting but also very simple way, which is that when white people fight for queer liberation, they do so because that is the main barrier that they're facing in order to access white privilege. Once they've nailed queer liberation, then they can actually exist within the same framework that white supremacy exists under and they can benefit and profit off of it. Whereas when people of color fight for queer liberation and they've broken down that barrier, there still exists the barrier of racism that prevents them from accessing the privileges or the ease of living under white supremacy. And I think remembering that in a lot of queer spaces is important. Queerness is the only, is not the only thing I think that keeps people of color down, which is again, why I feel uncomfortable going to pride because it positions it as though that is the one homogenized adversity that everyone is facing um, and refuses to acknowledge some of the nuances of that. How do you think we can go about addressing this white privilege, um, especially in already, you know, marginalized groups such as the queer community? I think to look at it as queer issues as being removed from um, race theory, that's the barrier and that's the issue. So to talk about it as like we can get our queer allies to do this for us to make this space safer, I feel like that actually might be reductive as an approach because what we need are people to fight against white supremacy regardless of whether or not it's in queer spaces. And if you start doing it in your life as a whole, it will just filter into queer spaces naturally. I talk about this kind of often actually when, I'm, when I deliver workshops. Um, on decolonizing language, that you can just change your vocabulary and expect that to decolonize your writing and your subject matter. You have to do the reading and you have to engage in conversations and you have to essentially like start living an anti-colonial life and then your writing will reflect that too. And I think maybe that the same goes for addressing white privilege within queer spaces is you can't just do it in queer spaces alone and think that you're doing enough work. You have to address white privilege in every facet of your life. And then it will just happen organically in queer spaces as well. Thank you so much, Lejeune, for your time today. I think we've had a really important discussion and I'm very grateful that I got to chat to you about it. Do you mind sharing where our listeners can find your work and keep up to date with it? Yes, so I have a very DIY website. <laughs> um, it's Hodani, my surname, hodani.glitch.me. It's where I update the list of my writing as new pieces get published. And then if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at hellohodani. Thank you for sharing that, Lujane, and I can't wait to see what you produce in the future. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. <laughs>